0: There was a a whole movement within those churches called Back to Jerusalem, and this movement was focused on the idea that the gospel had spread from Jerusalem into the West, had gone through Europe and spread into the the Americas, and the belief that that gospel would come back from the Americas into the East and spread from the East back to Jerusalem. So they had this, this idea that that's the way that God kind of planned the gospel to spread around the world. And they believe that they were called by God to become missionaries into the Middle East.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and my guest today is Caleb Payne, who spent over a decade as a missionary evangelist in China and Tibet. I'm fascinated by the way that the gospel gets transmitted in non-Western cultures. You know, when we think about the early church, it was primarily made up of either Jewish converts or Gentile converts within the Roman Empire. And so even though there were different ethnicities and um, different languages. There there was a certain level of like shared cultural background just based kind of on national identity. Um, you know, that's why the gospel was written in Greek, because that was at the very least a, a literal universal language. Um, so when I think about the gospel being spread to, you know, Native American Indians or Aztecs or people in India, people in China, people in Japan, it's so fascinating to me because they don't even really have the same kind of groundwork um, already laid that, that you would find um, in, in Western cultures. Obviously, in China, there are many greater hurdles um, to sharing the gospel than, you know, simply a, um, you know, foreign culture. There, there's a, an entire government that is hostile not only to Christianity, but to religion and even theism in general, which makes the work of evangelization there not only difficult, but incredibly dangerous. Um, So it was really interesting to talk to Caleb, um, who had actually learned the language so as to communicate with them. I think about the line in the Gospel of John where Jesus tells his apostles that they will do greater works than he did, which is pretty fascinating because Jesus already, you know, healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons, and he told his apostles that they were going to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. Um, You know, so how can they do greater works than he did? And I think that the work of evangelization is first and foremost that greater work because Christ preached the gospel primarily to, as he called it, the lost sheep of the house of Israel to the Jewish people. He had very few encounters with Gentiles, and even though he was met certainly with um, hostility by certain people in in um, you know the Jewish leadership, especially, they already knew who the one true God was. They already knew um, the moral precepts of the law. Um, they already knew that the prophets had been foretelling a Messiah for generations and generations. So. In a sense, he was you know, the final key that would unlock all the scriptures that came before them. But for the church after Christ going into foreign lands, um, you know, that preparation for the gospel was there only in, in you know, tiny seedling forms. So, it, you know, it really is a marvel um, that the gospel has permeated most parts of the world today. And I think that really goes back to the foundational truth of Christianity, which is the incarnation. God has become man. God became man in a particular time and place and culture, but he then commanded that the gospel be preached to the ends of the earth. Um, And so the gospel is also meant to be incarnated into every time and in every place and in every culture. And there's this um, beautiful tapestry of both unity and diversity. And I'm not just saying those because they sound like buzzwordy, but r- really, like the Catholic faith, faith is the universal faith. So the truths are the same, uh, but there can be different ways of expressing it, you know, whether different languages, um, you know, different traditions, you know, different even styles of worship. Um, so, yeah. This is the last episode of season 3. Uh I also just recently hit the 1 year anniversary of the podcast. So that's pretty wild to think that um in a, just a year I've I've done, you know, over 30 interviews, put out over 39 episodes. Um it's it's been a really cool experience and I'm grateful to all the people who have listened and supported and, uh, followed along. I hope the podcast has blessed you in some way. I hope the conversations have inspired you, um, and uplifted you and taught you and made you think, um, and, you know, didn't like bore you, uh, to tears. <laughs> so yeah, I will be back in the new year. Um, with a whole new set of episodes um there'll be a couple of announcements coming out um and and maybe some solo episodes in the meantime regarding the merch i have ordered the merch the merch is on its way stickers and magnets magnets and stickers featuring the glorious crab and the cross cover art logo um I am setting up a Shopify account, which will be the easiest way to um, sell those, so I will probably put out a special little message in the next week giving you instructions on that. And just a reminder that you can become a subscriber for as little as 99 cents per month, and that will guarantee you a free magnet or a free sticker. Okay, those are all the things Thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review this podcast. Oh, and I found out just today that i it sounds like Google Podcasts is shutting down um, very soon. So if you are a listener on Google Podcasts, head on over to Spotify or Apple or iHeartRadio or um, something else to subscribe because uh, Google Podcasts, is in its final uh, days, apparently. Okay, and now here's my conversation with Caleb Payne. Caleb Payne grew up in Phoenix Valley, Arizona. After high school, he served as a youth minister for two years before becoming a missionary in China. There he met his future wife, Kate, where they continue to serve together for eight years. They currently reside in Greenville, South Carolina with their three children. Caleb currently serves as a team leader for the St. Paul Street Evangelization Team and does local pro-life ministry. This fall, he will begin diaconate formation for the Diocese of Charleston. Caleb, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, good. I'm, I'm interested in talking to you because I think when we think about missionaries um, and the fields where missionaries are most successful, China's kind of been that one place where it almost seems like the gospel has not penetrated. You know, there's, uh, you know, North America, South America, Europe, Africa, all very Christian places. uh, But Asia, you know, it seems like it's been less receptive to the gospel. And so I'm very curious to learn about um, what it was like bringing Christianity to a culture that, um, you know, has at times been somewhat inhospitable to it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, that was probably the, the one thing that motivated me to become a missionary to Asia was the, um, the idea that there was a lack of the gospel going out to different, uh, various people in that area. Um, so, um, when I discovered the need to go to China um, through a connection I had in youth ministry, um, we had taken a, a group of youth on a trip to China. And when I went there, I just realized, wow, this is, this is really where I want to work as a missionary. Um, but what I discovered in China, which is kind of interesting, um, going to your point that this, you know, Asia tends to be a place where we, where we look at it and we say, why is it taking so long for the gospel to be accepted there? Um, why is it taking so long for Christianity to be rooted in this area? Um, what I realized is that China is very unique in that it has an underground or a house church movement within it that hmm. comprise, co- comprises almost um, some some people will quote, it's probably hard for them to measure this, but some at the time when I was there said it was about 6% of the population. Um, send, some said it was even up to 10% of the population. If you think at the time that I was there, it was about 1.3 billion people. Um, that's a wow. lot of people. Um, how many people uh, at yeah. that time were in the United States? Um, that might have been one quarter to one third of the people of the population of the United States were actually professing Christians. And not only that, they weren't um Christians that went to the official approved churches um that the Communist Party approved. They were most of them people that were in underground house churches. So they definitely very fervently practiced their faith. They went to church every Sunday or whenever they could. Um they did it secretly, they did it with the with the idea that they were um, under pressure, that they were under persecution, that they could be caught, um, that they could possibly go to jail or or lose um, you know their property because of what they were doing. so there there yeah. actually are a lot of lot of Christians in China. People just don't. It's just not we don't see it on the surface. Now, when I went to China, I wanted to go to Tibet. Um, because I knew that the Chinese people had already been reached with the gospel and that it was flourishing amongst them. Um, And I I found many Chinese people very open to hearing the gospel because um, they had maybe already heard a little bit about it. Maybe not as much as a Westerner would have, but they certainly had some familiarity with Christianity. Um, Now, when I went to areas in, in, in Tibetan areas, Tibetans were a totally different story.
1: Wow. Yeah, I think we forget as Americans, you know, because our country is one of the largest countries in the world, but it's like a third of the size of India and China. And so even though Christianity is not the majority religion in either of those places that still amounts to millions and millions of Christians, um it's just not oh. like how it is in other parts of the world where the countries are so small. And so you can say, okay, this country's majority Christian.
0: Mm-hmm. right.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, When you first, um, you know, took kids over there as a a youth minister, first of all, was it difficult to get into China? Like, did you have to kind of go under uh, uh, false pretenses?
0: Yeah, you could say it like that. Um, We called it a cover (laughs) to be politically correct (laughs) or unpolitically correct. But, um, you know, at the time that we went and it was about 2000, I was about 20 years old um we went on a preliminary trip um with with the leaders of this group because we're planning on bringing a lot of youth and I mean a hundred or more and that's quite a big endeavor there um so we had several different teams that we're going to break up into and they were going to go to different cities within China and we had you know a, a few leaders per team um that would lead this group of of youth mainly teenagers And, uh, so, you know, my team and I, uh, we went in to China on this preliminary trip and we, we decided, you know, every time we go in, we're going to smuggle Bibles because that's what the Chinese house church needs. Um, so we went to, you know, Goodwill, got some really old ratty looking, uh, suitcases for a couple bucks, filled them with Chinese Bibles and, uh, attempted to smuggle them over the border when we arrived in Beijing and, um, that first trip it was interesting i got caught and the uh yeah the uh, customs was like uh you know the gentleman that that interrogated me um he was actually quite funny i thought he he had pretty good english and he was like so what are you going to do with these bibles you know you know you're not supposed to bring these over and i said well um we're going to give them to some friends you know i was trying to be as vague as possible and he right, said right, right. he said what friends You have friends (laughs) in China. And then suddenly I realized, you know, I'm really not going to get away with this um, by playing tricks with these guys. Um, But at that time, um, thankfully, China was trying to integrate themselves more on a world, uh, on the world stage, um, economically and politically and whatnot. They were trying to open themselves up more. Um, And uh, I, I think, you know, they weren't as strict on these things as maybe they they were 40 50 years ago or maybe they are even now they become a little bit stricter since i left but um what they would do is they just said okay well we're going to give you this receipt and when you come back through the airport to go back to your destination we'll give you your bibles back you just can't take them into china um, wow. they did let me bring, bring one Bible for personal use and that, that was pretty much it, but yeah, they did confiscate our Bibles and and we got them back when we left just as they promised. Um, wow. but the second trip, uh, that we took where, where I said we, we brought, um, quite a few significant amount of youth with us. We, 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 we were successful by, I think a miracle of God. Um, huh. we pretended to be a large tourist group. We had flags to sort of direct everyone. Everyone wore <laughs> like the same. The same color and and right when we showed up to the airport, the the um the customs security guards were actually doing a, a change of guard. And mm-hmm. so they didn't really want to deal with us, so they just waved us right through. Wow. Because they saw this huge group of foreigners coming. They're like, Oh my I think they were like, Oh my goodness, we don't want to check all them. So they actually just waved us through and we got through with all the Bibles. Every every single youth carried two suitcases of Bibles.
1: Wow. And I would, yeah
0: I would estimate that on that particular trip we must have smuggled like thirty thousand or more Bibles,
1: oh my goodness, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah it was pretty amazing um, and you know, but we were you know, like I said they give us a slap on the hand. We weren't really the ones that were in danger. The ones that were in danger were the the Chinese house church Christians who were receiving those Bibles when we sure. when we got through the airport customs um you know, the fear of 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 them picking us up and taking the Bibles away. It's like, is someone following us? Is, you know, are they keeping an eye on us? You know, maybe they didn't stop us at customs, but are they keeping an eye on who's who's talking to us? Who's picking us up? So there is definitely a lot of that going on when we went to the hotels. The the people that are were with were, were worried that they were bugs. So we didn't we didn't talk about these things in the hotel room. Um, for that purpose. We were there on tourism. That was strictly it. Um, If we went out somewhere where it was kind of neutral, we always looked to see if people were following us. And then, and then we would, you know, if we were felt like we're in a safe place, then we would talk about what we were planning on doing and what we, what we did basically.
1: Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to be a teacher, uh, a high school teacher. And honestly, I hated taking students on field trips, like we would take them to the March for Life in DC. And like that, in and of itself was nerve wracking to me, because there's so many people there. And I've got all these teenagers. So just the fact that you brought all of these teens to a foreign country to do something that was, you know, technically illegal under their laws is, is just a marvel to me, because I would be just to have to look after them and make sure that they're not talking about things they're not supposed to be talking about in the hotel would just I don't know, I don't know if I could handle that.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a bit it was a bit nerve-wracking, but we had some good training. we we um, you know everyone was pretty serious about it, and uh, mm-hmm. we had a few days in um the the group that we were with was was pretty good. We had a few days in South Korea and um and we actually went to the border of of South Korea and North Korea. And uh, what there's a group down there that has, um, they take uh, balloons and fill them with helium, and and the balloons actually have uh, a whole bunch of gospel verses on them that would help lead someone to um, salvation. And we would we would then those balloons would be filled, and we would actually on a day when the wind was would take them over the uh the south korean border over the demilitarization zone into north korea we would just let them off wow and uh, just in hopes that those balloons would reach north koreans um so you know i wow yeah the youth really got a taste of you know the seriousness of what they were doing and i, I think a lot of them were, were very much into it and very very good you know when they were there so
1: oh, wow so, once you got to China, um were you already in touch with members of a particular underground church that you were going to work with
0: yeah the 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 group that had had taken us, um the gentleman that that ran it had lived in China himself at one point and came back to start this organization to make people more aware of the needs of the house church churches in china. and um, mm-hmm. Yes, he had so he had a lot of connections. Um, he ended up hooking me up with a a Chinese gentleman named John Tao, and I you know he knew that I was interested in working with Tibetans. And he said, "I really suggest that you go to Yunnan Province, to Kunming, uh, which is would- the capital of Yunnan Province. And he said that that area of China is a lot more open to missionaries and to Christianity than other parts of China." And so he thought, you know, introducing me to John would be good. John had a, um, an operation down there um, where, and it was also very secretive as well because of the nature of it. But there was a lot of house church, um, house church Christians from the northeast of China who wanted to become missionaries. And there was a, a whole movement within those churches called Back to Jerusalem. And this movement was focused on the idea that the gospel had spread from Jerusalem into the West, had gone through Europe and spread into the the Americas. And the belief that that gospel would come back from the Americas into the East and spread from the East back to Jerusalem. So they had this, this idea that that's the way that God kind of planned the gospel to spread around the world. And they believe that they were called by God to become missionaries into the into the Middle East. So they believe that Ch- the Chinese church was called to bring the gospel into, into places like Central Asia, like Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, you know, Iran, um, Iraq, um, all those places. So they were actually preparing themselves to do that. So he had an underground seminary in Kunming um, and these north, these northeastern house church missionaries would come there. They would study um, theology. They would study English. So he needed uh, like a like a um, he needed an English teacher. Now I wasn't a formal English teacher, but a lot of them had learned English in elementary and middle school and high school. They learned grammar. They learned how to read. They just couldn't speak it because they didn't have anyone to practice with. Mm-hmm. So he. He placed me with those um, house church leaders or missionaries to to help them learn spoken English. Their hopes were to eventually be able to um, get passports, which was very difficult for Chinese citizens at the time. And eventually, um, yeah. while learning learning English, they could travel into the Middle East and better learn the the languages there because they do. It, it's hard to learn to go into a, a university in the Middle East without knowing the universal language, which most mostly is English. They don't necessarily have a book that translates from Chinese to Arabic.
1: Yeah. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah. It just made them just made them more able to travel um if they knew how to speak, read and write English.
1: Right. That makes sense. Now are these house churches, are they largely just non-denominational Christian?
0: Yeah, you know, um What's interesting about the Chinese, and, and and I'm going to talk about, in this sense, I'm talking about the Protestant Chinese house churches.
1: Okay.
0: Um, my experience with the Catholic Chinese house church is pretty much nil, um, because when I was there, I was a Protestant. Oh, okay. um, so I can only speak from experience and knowledge to the Protestant house churches. Um you know being a catholic is is a totally different thing and i'm i'm sure we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit later how i became catholic but um you know what happened at the the um the very beginnings of the 19th of the 20th century when missionaries were very successfully at the end of the 1800s the, the early 1900s successfully spreading um, christianity through china one of the one of the main um, groups was called the China Inland Mission. And the hero or the founder of the China Inland Mission, his name is Hudson Taylor. Um, I'm sure any Protestant listeners are going to know that name. He's a famous missionary. And what he's famous for is breaking the traditional way of doing um, colonization type missions that a lot of the larger Protestant denominations were trying to do. See, a lot of European countries were putting pressure on the on the chinese um, dynasty at the time to allow them to do certain forms of trade and to settle in certain areas and uh they at the same time there was the opium war and at the same time missionaries were coming in the same boats that you know as or at least from the chinese perspective they were coming in the same boats that the opium was coming in on and that caused a lot of distrust and distaste towards the west in particular but but also missionaries in general because they just associated them with this western form of colonization and aggression towards china's sovereignty um hudson taylor on the other hand you know he was more from a uh you know non-denominational or fundamentalist baptist type background um and he founded an organization called china inland mission and when he when he went to China, he decided he wanted to to, you know, look like a Chinese person, yeah. dress like a Chinese person, eat like a Chinese person, um, be like a Chinese person and reach Chinese people as as Chinese people should be reached. You know, he dyed his hair black for that very reason. I mean, he tried to. look, Yeah, he tried to look as Chinese as possible and he lived poverty. Yeah. Um, He didn't actually go out and raise funds and say, I need this much money for this. He just trusted God. Um, It is quite an amazing example. Um, It it wasn't necessarily revolutionary uh, for Catholics because the Jesuit and many other missionary groups in the the Catholic Church had already been doing that. Um, Jesuits were quite famous for inculturating themselves and and looking like Chinese and they're doing it well before Hudson Taylor did and maybe he was inspired by them I don't know yeah. but um it was very revolutionary for for Protestant missions at the time and wow. because of that he made you know his missionaries made a lot of inroads into places in China that others could not but what this spurred on in in the Protestant Chinese house church was this feeling that the the chinese church that was being founded by these missionaries needed to be chinese it needed to be autonomous Mm -hmm. and and so they did they started to found an autonomous chinese church with with autonomous pastors and in an autonomous governing body now a lot of these these churches sort of took the flavor of whatever denomination the missionary um had started them under whatever you know protestant tradition It, it may have been methodist um, it may have been Baptist, it may have been Presbyterian. Yeah. Um, so once the communists took over, um, this idea of self um autonomy took took place in what's called the three self-patriotic movement. Um, and in a sense, it kind of it kind of took this idea of Chinese autonomy and tried to implant it into a or or I shouldn't say implant it, but melded together with a communist approved official church um, mm-hmm. that was regulated by the communist party and at the time a lot of a lot of uh you know chinese house church or chinese church leaders they weren't house churches at the time but a lot of the chinese church leaders who had their sort of self-governing um, churches said we don't want to have anything to do with communism because we don't want a whole bunch of atheists telling us how to run our churches, basically. And and a lot of them, you know, got persecuted because of that. But some of them said, no, we need to work together with the government. Uh, We need to work together with the communists. And they went along with this three-self movement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of lost. And even if there were Protestant churches that had a specific connection with a denomination, that was overseas, they lost that connection when the communists took over. The communists cut that umbilical cord completely and and said, you cannot have connection with anyone from the West um, and you need to be autonomous. So the ones that resisted the communists went underground and the ones that worked with the communists Became official churches for a little while, let's just say that. They eventually got persecuted and and as well under the cultural revolution and other reforms that Mao Zedong did. But because of that, there's not really denominations. So and back to the same, the you know, long ways to get back to your answering your question, there's not really denominations, but there are, you know, certain house church movements um that kind of reflect. Some of those denominational roots that they came from, so right. you're going to have some kind of Baptist-ish type house churches, and you're going to have some sort of Presbyterian type house churches. They they call those ones the once saved, always saved Christians. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how they put it, you know. And you have some that are kind of Methodist or whor- or Holiness, Pentecostal, kind of charismatic. Mm-hmm. You have you have those type of house churches as well. But you know, wow. one thing that they always told me. And I, I would ask the the house church leaders that I did work with, I said, you know, don't you want freedom? Are are you praying for and looking forward for to a time when there's there's no persecution and there's freedom of religion in China? And they said, like, we want that, but we we don't want to become like America when it happens. And I said, well, wow. what do you do that? And they said, well, we don't we don't want to have all these divisions.
1: Wow! And, you know,
0: so they the the persecution and the pressure on the house churches, even though they they did have different sort of little traditions, they feel like it brought them together to work together a lot more. And you know, you would even see um, various, you know house house church Christians uh, feeling perfectly fine working with Catholics as well. Oh,
1: interesting, even
0: though even though they knew that their their way of worship was probably a little bit different, they would still work together um you know to help each other so
1: right so besides you know using the Chinese language what were some other ways that you saw their practice of prayer or worship or community life kind of enculturated or kind of have a sort of Chinese spin to it
0: you mean in the um in the in the churches in particular amongst the Christians or just amongst Chinese people in general
1: yeah, amongst the Christians, like what like, you know, you talked about how, um what was his name, Hudson Taylor? Like, yeah, you know, he wanted to more so, um, you know, he didn't want to make them adopt Western culture along with Christianity. So, you know, in your experience there, like were there certain ways of doing things or certain spiritual habits they had that, you know, you could say, like this is kind of a Chinese um infused Christianity?
0: Oh, absolutely. yeah. Um, so, and and that was the, the most awesome thing about the the now the the first year that I was there was when I actually worked with John Tao and his um his underground church leaders i ended up moving on to something else later on but that that year was very formative to me because i i got to actually be with the chinese christians and see how they worshiped um, we would go up on a mountain outside of our town um secretly like early 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 in the morning before the sun rose and um and go up there and worship and they taught me um several chinese hymns now the interesting thing and and I, I i don't i don't like it when we do this but there was a lot of sort of western traditional hymns maybe wesleyan hymns or other hymns that you would hear in a western church but they had been translated to chinese and i just thought yeah. that sounds so that sounds so weird
1: yeah <laughs> it just
0: it just doesn't sound right you know and but they had all these hymns that were actually to Chinese tunes. And mm. um you know they were they were absolutely amazing. and um there's a there's a famous uh, house church um, lady, and I, I wish I could remember her name off the top of my head. I can't rem- remember it now. But during the time of the cultural revolution, she was assigned to a um a rural farm to work. And while she was at that rural farm, this is it was a very distressing time for everyone because right. there was just a lot of poverty. There was just a lot of, not not enough resources to go around. But while she was at that rural farm, um, God inspired her to write thousands of these hymns. And they're all wow. um, very Chinese. You know, <laughs> the tune is very Chinese. The hymns are very Chinese. And so those those hymns have actually, been the 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 main hymns that are sung throughout the chinese house churches wow so that's one that's one example they would you know when they would sing those hymns they would dance um really? they would they had their they had particular dances that they would do and they said they said to me you don't like normally dance when you worship i said <laughs> well i i I did used to go to a charismatic church. I mean, we would like jump yeah. up and down because it was like rock and roll or something like that and raise our hands. But there wasn't like a, it was almost like a choreographed dance.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. And it was very Chinese. Yeah. Very Chinese. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. And, and what did they do? Did they practice communion?
0: I don't know um, because I didn't actually, um, they didn't practice communion when I was with them worshiping. Um okay. I don't know how often they did it. I'm sure they probably did. I did go to a few. I generally didn't go to their services
1: oh, because okay. it,
0: it put them in too much danger.
1: Oh, like, you does that you make sense? Out, yeah. like would, like, who's this non-Chinese person gathering?
0: Yeah, they, they would gather secretly in a house church.
1: Okay. And
0: usually they were in, in, in sort of a, a village type area where there wasn't usually foreigners walking through. So for okay. me to show up, I would just be a, big you know whoa what does this guy do and why is it going right. to those people's house and they would just right. put okay. too much attention on them so okay. i didn't really go to many of those so i did go to a few house church services while i was there and i never saw communion distributed
1: okay but so i'm what sure was, i'm
0: sure that they probably do right yeah.
1: so was was the format um did it seem more liturgical or was it pretty loose like you know just singing and preaching and you know did they do anything else that was? Um,
0: No, it was not liturgical at all. It was, it was just singing and preaching basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: So then with the, you know, you said you had students there with you. What were they doing while, while y'all were there?
0: Oh, do you mean the, 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 the group of youth that we took with us?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Originally. Yeah. That was a short-term missions trip. So we were only there, I think for a couple of weeks, if I remember right. It's been a long time. Uh, Maybe not even like two weeks maybe just 10 days or something like that so they traveled around with us and and we went to places um sightseeing um we also um met with some some chinese house church leaders that they were able to talk to um and we also went to the biggest thing um for you know uh foreigners to go to china who who don't speak the language um they have at that time i don't know about today but at that time they had a lot of what's called english corners. so every town had an english corner because there are so many chinese people learning english that they had started these things called english corners and all these chinese university students or high school students would get together on a certain particular night and just try to practice english with each other they'd all just stand around talking english so we would go to the english corners and they would get super excited because hey wow there's these foreigners that can actually speak English and and they would just gather around us and they would be able to communicate with them so that was the way that they actually got to communicate with the Chinese people that they met and 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 share their faith as well
1: um so then did you travel from different locations or did you stay in one spot you know was it more evangelization or were you doing you know forming Christians that were already um you know believers
0: yeah so like i said that the first year that i was in china um i was working with with the house church leaders um very soon i I began to meet a lot of other missionaries and you know i still had a desire to go work in in tibetan areas and and do some outreach to tibetans because i knew they were almost completely unreached Mm -hmm. um they you know many of them had never heard the gospel there's not very many tibetan christians in the world um, so I wanted, that's where I really wanted to go and, and focus all my energy. So eventually I, I did meet some missionaries who had been there longer than I had, and they had been doing work amongst the various, um, what China calls minority groups, um, within the country. And those are just different ethnic groups that are not ethnically Chinese, but are part of the Chinese country. Um, yeah. much like our native Americans, uh, I guess you can say, um, And so, you know, I hooked up with these missionaries and eventually started learning from them. Um, I started going on trips to some Tibetan villages within our province of Yunnan. There's Tibetan villages there as well. Um, And and eventually I just started making and befriending, making friends with some of the villagers. You know, began to learn Chinese and started to share my faith in a very basic way with them. They wanted to learn more. So eventually I, I hooked up with the missionaries and said, I need some help. And uh, we we eventually started going to these Tibetan villages more and more often, until we formed yeah. a team of both missionaries and um, local um, house church leaders from minority groups—not not, not um, traditional Chinese Han Chinese, um, but but house church leaders from minority groups that would come and uh, help us preach the gospel and then also disciple the people that did want to believe. So I did that for a while, um, for a a few years at least. Eventually, um, after I met my wife, um, there were some issues with that group that I was with, and I started to to sort of question some of the practices. So eventually, I I went out of that group, and my wife and I decided to um, try to start a a nonprofit where we were focused on bringing um, college students from America to China to do service learning projects. And, and those college students we were hoping would be Christian and that they would do service learning projects with some of the, some of the other groups that were there. Um, A lot of their, their way of, of getting and staying in China was that they were doing charitable type work, Um, whether it be medical clinics or, um, or training, or, um, you know, some people had businesses um, that they were doing, some people were doing like development projects with some of the local um, governments of of the different counties that they were in. And uh, that was sort of their, co- it wasn't just their cover. I mean, it's something yes. that they genuinely did. Um, but at the same time, it yeah. also gave them an inroad into China so that they can continue missionary work. And so we wanted to bring students to kind of learn from that and experience that um, and maybe, maybe help with some of those projects. But the most exciting thing to me was, was going from village to village and trying to preach the gospel. That was, that was the most awesome thing.
1: So what do you, how do you, like, if you want to go and evangelize somebody there, somebody who's not Christian, how do you even make the connection in the first place? Like, are you going door to door or are you setting up somewhere? Like, how are you even encountering people? And then, you know, Obviously, you know, in some parts, you probably have to worry about if they're, you know, going to be, you know, tattling on you to the government. So, how do you make those initial connections?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great, great question. So, when I was there, when I first started traveling um, through some of these remote areas, a lot of the people had never ever seen a white foreigner just showing yeah. up. Would would bring people to you? They oh, wow. were just so curious, so interested to talk to you, so interested to see you um,
1: yeah. that
0: suddenly you had a captive audience. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, a lot of the times that's that's kind of how we did it. It actually, for us, it became a method that actually helped some of our, our local missionaries because they wouldn't get the same response, you know? Um, oh, yeah, you're just, where are you from? You know, oh, I'm from the town down the road. Oh, yeah, who cares? You know, what are you doing here? Um, right. You know, and and they might get more suspicion that way, too. Like, what are you up here for business? Like, what are you traveling up here for? For us to go in first and kind of um, break the ice and to be able to share the gospel or invite them to further discipleship, if they're interested, um, it, it helped in that sense. I mean, there was a there negative was a- side to it, too. Um, the negative side was that Westerners at that time were seen as big money bags. Um, so you always had to kind of guess what, what was the motive of them coming along and deciding they wanted to become Christians? (laughs) Was it because they really genuinely wanted to convert or were they just interested in, in the fact that, you know, the Westerners might have some opportunity for them.
1: Did you work with a translator or did you actually be able to learn the language?
0: I had to learn language myself. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: it, it, It took a while. And I would say, you know, even when I left in 2008, I still wasn't satisfied. But you know everyone oh, wow. said oh you're doing you're doing good you're fluent you know but there were still there were still topics that that sort of I stumbled on but even even in that sense I was good enough to say oh wow what you, wait you you said this particular word what does that mean and they could tell me in Chinese what it means and I would figure it out.
1: Mm, yeah. So what were some of the you know you mentioned just the fact that you know some people might just view westerners as you know, source of, of growing their wealth. What were some of the other challenges that you encountered with sharing the gospel with um, people of China?
0: Yeah, you know, I did, I did find that sort of that, that challenge of, of, you know, it's popular to become Christian um, because the West is Christian and look at them. They're very prosperous. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah so I, I found that more in the metropolitan areas of China, um especially with the Chinese. Um, you know, i had I had led a Bible study group at one point of college chinese college students and 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 I kind of had to very cautiously um, warn them that that's not what this was all about. Um, mm. you know, go ahead, you know, try to be as successful as possible. I'm not trying to knock that, but right. at the same time, Christianity was about carrying the cross mm. and denying themselves, um, for the love of God and for the love of neighbor. So I, I certainly tried to emphasize that to them, um, yeah. that, you know, they still lived in a country that, that, um, it, you know, didn't quite accept Christianity. they they were taking a risk by becoming Christians and was it really worth it to them in that sense? Um, so I, I would definitely give them those warnings um, and be very clear about them. Um, yeah. On the other hand, in, in Tibet, um, it was a totally different story. Um, like I said before, Chinese people had a little bit of a background on um, Christianity and what it was about. Um, they were, They were a lot more educated in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um maybe maybe not so much as a as as a, a person in America you walk up in the street hey have you heard the gospel yeah i already right. know the, you know um they weren't necessarily like that um so they were very curious because they knew enough to be curious about what christianity was all about and what we actually believed um i remember one one gentleman um he was actually in the police academy and he converted when when we had a con- uh, a conversation and i i had described to him that um god was a lawgiver you know and he had a divine law that was unchangeable and that sin was was breaking that law and and you know after i totally went down this whole idea of of god being the lawgiver and the judge um sin breaking that law and offending god and we had to repent of our sins and um believe in jesus he he suddenly just like oh yeah i i totally get it now and wow. and he he became a believer so it just there, you know, as, but it was, that was very easy compared to Tibetans. Tibetans, uh-huh. on the other hand, um, you know, um, they didn't—they didn't even ha- really have a, a, you know, a clear creation story. Um, they don't have this background that they believe this higher power, this God, created everything, right? And, and that we're subject to that higher power. They're—they're they're Buddhists, yeah. um, and and the goal of Buddhism is totally different. Uh, and Even Buddha himself said that if a God created this, this world, he must be an idiot um, because it's full of suffering. It's all suffering. Um, And, and the only way to, to reach um, enlightenment, enlightenment is to escape this world is to escape this world of suffering and attachment basically. So the, the, they had a totally different worldview and to actually sit down and just say, Hey, um, I'm here to tell you about Jesus and, and, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and um, you have to believe in him so that you can have forgiveness of sins and one day go to heaven. They're like, what? Yeah. What are you you talking about? Why would someone have to die? Why would, you know, sins, what, you know, they just had no concept whatsoever. You could not start um, there. You actually had to start with, I would start with the creation story.
1: Really? Okay. And,
0: and, and even that, even that as a beginning would, would be difficult to talk about.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, um, you had to start with, there is a God
1: Yeah. Um,
0: who is a creator God. You know, I, it was just, it was, it was, it was very difficult, you know, with Tibetans, it was more of building a relationship mm-hmm. and, and, and then, Learning to trust you so that they could actually listen to you.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean that that makes sense. Like, you know, I always because there's kind of two parts of conversion. There's like, uh, you know, especially for someone who's not from a, a Christian or a Judeo-Christian culture, there's just the intellectual part of like understanding the basic story of like creation, the fall, redemption, you know, forgiveness, eternal life. Like, just getting that kind of narrative down is one thing, but then to like then there's like that interior part of really being converted, which, which, you know, involves some kind of encounter with, with God himself. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, you can't really manufacture that.
0: No, you can't. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of cultures, uh, a lot of different cultures and people groups within the world have within them. um, And there's a good book on this It's called eternity in their hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, They have these little seeds of the truth and the gospel in them. And, and some, some cultures more so than others, you know, we know a lot of cultures have flood stories that are very similar to the flood story in the Bible. A lot of cultures have the idea of a, of a all supreme and all powerful God, even, even if they're possibly polytheistic,
1: um,
0: they still have one who's really supreme overall. Um, you know, there's, you know, even within Greek, um, philosophy, we find some, some seeds basically, um, the chinese culture is 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 just full of these um there's there's chinese characters that point to um or the the actual ancient characters not the new versions of them but the ancient characters themselves you can use those to share the gospel because yeah. they point to the realities of the gospel they you know for centuries believed in in a in a in a an above emperor that was in heaven um and and you know years and years ago they used to sacrifice um to that emperor in heaven um so the missionaries had a lot of success with the chinese because they could sort of tap into these these seeds that were planted there and remain there um and they could reference them and say hey look you know look at this is what confucius said and this is true and this is what you know your the ancient ancestors of china believed and and this is partly true um but in in tibet there's it's almost impossible to find those and missionaries that have been going there for a very long time have had a very difficult time. Even finding a word for God.
1: Really? Yes. Yep. Wow. It's
0: been very, very difficult.
1: Wow. It, what, I'm curious though, like in Tibet, um, you know, I, I guess, in, you know, in China you kind of have the powers that be that are sort of hostile to Christianity. Um in tibet do you have a similar I, I mean i know there's sort of tension with them and the chinese government but did you find that like for example some of the you know buddhist leaders or some of the higher ups were also hostile to christianity or was it much more so just like these don't connect like you know there's no concepts to relate to
0: yeah i, I would say the the lamas or uh-huh. the living buddhas yeah um Within the monasteries, uh, if they caught whiff of what we were trying to do, they they were definitely hostile.
1: Oh, really? Um, okay.
0: Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, uh, you know, in a sense, they're like pastors; are trying to protect their flock. Right. Right. Um, and and they they do not believe that Christianity is 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 good. You know, they don't think that it's a, it's it's necessarily a good. I mean, I'm sure they could pull out good qualities out of it, but the whole concept of of Christianity they do not believe is, is really the the ultimate reality or the truth of things. So they don't want, um, their flocks falling prey to it at all. Um, yeah. in, in that sense. Yeah. And so that's, that's very difficult. Um, you know, one of my heroes of the Catholic faith and, and my son's, um, patron saint, blessed Maurice Tournay, um, was a, a missionary to Tibet and the, some of the most longstanding successful Christian communities within Tibet or happened to be Catholic mm-hmm. um, you know, founded in Yunnan Province, where I used to work and and also right across the border into in tibet um he he faced great opposition from the the monks and the llamas, um the Buddhist monks and the Lamas. in fact, they ended up killing him, so wow,
1: um, yeah, wow
0: yeah,
1: yeah now did you um? like you know your conversion to catholicism did it have anything explicit to do with your missionary experience in china or learning about some of these catholic missionaries or or was it a journey that you didn't really embark on until you were back living in the states full time
0: yeah um when we came back to the states um we were kind of regrouping and just sort of rethinking things what are we going to do um things weren't working out in China very well It's become very much more difficult in China. They were starting to turn up the heat on missionaries and and different ways to stay there long-term. And we kind of saw the writing on the wall. So we came back and um, we just said, okay, what are we going to do? And um, I had decided, you know, why don't I get, you know, uh, like I said, I hadn't gone to college yet. Why don't I get some college degrees underneath me? Um, You know, get it, get a degree in something, you know, it's going to make me a better missionary in the future in case we need to go back and and have a reason to be in one of these difficult to access countries. Yeah. Um and so, you know, a lot of people suggested healthcare. They thought I would be good at it and I kind of liked some of the first responder classes that I had taken. Um so eventually I said, "Okay, I'm going to become a nurse." Um and I ended up going to um a college of nursing in Syracuse that's based out of a Catholic hospital, St. Joseph's. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. So when I showed up, I was like, wow, you know, there's Catholics everywhere. Um, and it was just <laughs> the atmosphere of the place. Um, the nuns that were there, um, still working. And I thought, gosh, you know, these people are really genuine Christians. Wow.
1: <laughs>
0: and, you know, it was just like, wow, you know, and, and, um, that got me thinking, but then at the same time, um, coincidentally, or by divine providence, I had found out that a, an old friend of mine who was, a re, he was very respected by myself as a, as a, um, you know, evangelical leader. He was a campus crusade minister, minister. Um, he ended up becoming Catholic. Wow. And, you know, I said, wow, why did, why did he become Catholic? You know, and I started to sort of just sort of guess, you know, like, I wonder what is it what is it with this whole Catholicism thing Yeah. (laughs) so that that sparked my interest you know at the time I was studying a lot I was kind of disillusioned with some of the um flavors of Protestantism that I had been in uh before I was a missionary and while I was a missionary um and I was just kind of searching um for like a systematic theology that I could really hold on to that I could really say yes that that is really the right one and um that is definitely christian orthodoxy right there mm. and i just had this this big desire for that and when my friend became catholic i said well why don't i just look at the catholic church and you know i know there's like a lot of weird things that they believe and you know it's probably not really right but i'm just going to i'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt and i'm going to look into it and and that's when sort of the journey began mm.
1: wow was there a particular book or particular thinker or particular idea that really grabbed you. That um, you know, kind of was your deeper gateway into the Catholic faith. Yeah,
0: you know, um it was. It, it's hard to say because I sort of started to consume everything. Mm, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I went to apologetics websites like Catholic Answers mm-hmm. and read some of their stuff, and right. you know, got into the forums and kind of argued things just to see what people <laughs> would say. Um, yeah, you know, and then I, I. I got to a point where I got kind of sick of the apologetics um, and said, "Okay, well, at least at this point, um, I could see that Catholics have a legitimate point of view and Mm -hmm. that I had many prejudices against them that were were not founded on the truth. You know, I I thought things that really were not what they say they believe or practice, Um, you know, things that had been taught to me by Protestants. Um, and so I started to realize that, yeah, okay, that's not really what Catholics believe. But at the same time, I kind of got into this, this thing of, I'm just don't know, do I really have to become Catholic? It's just another denomination, right? Um, (laughs) why can't we just all believe in Jesus and, and just call it good? Um, but I, I really, because of my search for orthodoxy, I really, and I really wasn't a relativist, even though that, that was kind of a relativist or an indifferent, position to take and i just told myself no this is not really who you are you're not being honest with yourself you know there's one truth and there's one truth only and um someone's got to have the right interpretation of it um how could there be so many you know there's so many common denominators yes but there's so many things that are so different and the catholic church was just like demanding belief in these things um like the eucharist um right like the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, um, like the the authority of of, of the magisterium, um, and and the importance of both scripture and tradition, and not just scripture alone. You know, uh, not just faith alone, but you know, um, faith. You know, working through love. You know, by God's grace within us, these things just sort of like hit me, and I was like, "Wait a second, you know, what is it that I really believe here?" So eventually, I said, "You know, okay, so I'm going to put the apologetics aside." And I'm just going to get some sources on Catholicism that just teach me what they actually believe systematically. And that's when I picked up a catechism, basically, and and read through the whole thing from front to back. Yeah. Um, But, you know, once I once I started to actually believe in the authority of the church and the importance of of an infallible um, interpretation of of the canon of scripture and tradition, you know, all that stuff, just it suddenly the light bulbs just started going off. And I, and I I just got to a point where I said, you know what? Um, It's, it's just so believable to me. It's so coherent. There's, there's not like a hole left in any of this stuff. It all fits together and answers all these questions I had that were unanswered within the Protestant churches. And, and eventually I just said, I I actually am starting to believe this. And I actually do believe this. So what do I do next? I got to become Catholic.
1: Right. And and was your wife kind of on that journey with you or was she more hesitant?
0: She was definitely more hesitant. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. see, I didn't grow up Christian. I grew up basically in a pagan household. Um, I always tell people I was woke before even woke was popular. (laughs) No, seriously, I'm not, I'm not really, I was, Um, we were quite liberal. Um, We were quite into those ideas that formed the foundation of what we're actually dealing with today um, in society. It was, you know it that's just the type of household i grew up in um so i didn't really have a strong christian foundation to go off if of. i just had my experience of, of becoming a christian later uh-huh. on as a teenager and and just the di- different denominations um but my wife she grew up in a traditional protestant denomination Reformed presbyterian and so you know she had a little bit more more to go off of a little bit more hesitation um Um, And, you know, she was quite suspicious at first, um, like, what is going on? What are you doing? Right. But we love we love each other and we trust each other. And so she just kind of let me be who I am. Yeah. And uh, at times I would I would sort of I just was got so excited about things that I would discover or, you know, I'd be like, you got to listen to this, you know, and I would read something out of the catechism or something that I found out. And she was just like, I just can't, I can't do it right now. I can't process this right now. And eventually I said, I said, listen, I want to share this with you, but I know, you know, it's too much. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to back off and let you be, you know, but just, you have to let me be as well, you know, and, and we just loved each other and I loved her and I respected her and Eventually, she kind of secretly started to pick up the catechism and read it as well. And she started to come to me and say, you know what it says <laughs> <in here."> Wow. <laughs> the white bulbs started going off for her as well.
1: Wow. So,
0: yeah, eventually, um, you know, I got confirmed and received into full communion in 2011. And my wife followed in 2012.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, wow. yeah. And did you guys already have kids? Like, were you married in China and having kids, or was that not till you came to the states? No,
0: yeah, we already had we already had our three children.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Um, yeah, we already had our three children. Um. So yeah, they they are all you know my wife was Presbyterian, so they were all already baptized.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Fascinating. Well, I, I want to be respecting your time, so just to kind, oh, kind of wrap. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how your missionary work in China prepared you for what you're doing now with St. Paul's and, and kind of some of the um, connections or maybe some of the, the differences that you experience trying to sort of evangelize here in the States now?
0: Yeah, um, when I came back in 2008, I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. You know, this country has so many um wonderful things
1: Uh um
0: you know rights and protections that we have to be able to have um something like free speech the first amendment i mean that is just there's people don't americans don't understand there's not it's just not the same in other countries um you can't just go around saying whatever you want to say (laughs)
1: um
0: you know about whomever you want to say it about you know um and, and you know um it just you know, when I came back, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've you know, what am I going to do? I've got to just continue to share the gospel because it's always been something that's burned on my heart to do is to lead other people um, to help lead them to to the waters of salvation. And, um, you know, I just I just had to do it. Um, it was kind of difficult becoming Catholic, though, because, um, you know, the 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 parish that I joined, I had to basically knock down the door just to get in. Um, wow. they They weren't quite ready. it they you know they weren't doing any kind of evangelization or outreach um they you know it 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 took me a while just to find the right person
1: oh was this in new york
0: yeah i was in it was in new york yeah Yeah. um so you know it it just wasn't happening and i and i knew that and i felt that i and i and i kind of had to really search around and say you know, where, where where's the Catholic church in all this? Like, like, don't they believe that we're supposed to go out and preach the gospel to all creation? And what are they doing about it now? And I I kind of, you know, one, I did have a a different perspective coming from an, you know, an evangelical charismatic background of of what evangelization is supposed to look like. Um, You know, you go in, you get some people saved, you read the Bible together, you got a church. Right. I mean, yes. It just, it doesn't happen like that in the Catholic church, right? We we have sacraments, we have a hierarchy, we have priests, so uh-huh. it's a little bit different, but at the same time, you know, um, the question is where has the Catholic church been recently for evangelization? You know, uh, whatever happened to, you know, the missionaries um, that went out and and that's what they did. They did preach the gospel. Um mm-hmm. You know, whatever happened to um, the people that went out, you know, and tried to share with their neighbors um, or or try to go out to the streets and share the gospel. And, um, you know, I, I just kind of had to find those resources and those people in the Catholic Church who were interested in that. Yeah. And also, like I said, you know, finding um, stories of saints like Blessed Maurice Ternay, um, other saints. Uh, eventually, I became... Um, Eventually I, I joined the Dominican Order. So I'm a I'm a fully professed lay Dominican. And wow. and I did that. Yeah, I did that for that reason because the whole spirituality of the Dominican Order is, you know, one, of course, to draw closer to God and contemplation, but to share that contemplation with those around us.
1: Right. To absolutely.
0: preach, basically. Absolutely. We're the order of preachers to preach yeah. the gospel and to lead people to salvation. Um, so absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's beautiful. And so then what do you exactly do with St. Paul's? Like what's kind of the, how does that.
0: Yeah. St. Uh, St. Paul's street uh, evangelization. I'm sure. Some of your hearers have probably heard of them. Um, okay. they're, they're, you know, not just nationally, but internationally, they have teams, um, all over the world, um, started by, um, Steve Dawson. And, uh, basically, um, what we do is we, we find, um, you know, some other like-minded Catholics who want to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, we go out basically to the public, um, any, anywhere in the public that has a good amount of people. Um, you know, you don't just set up in a parking lot where there's no one around basically, but, you know, maybe like a um, a shopping mall or, um, you know, a downtown or at a festival. Um, here in in, uh, in South Carolina, we go to um flea markets are really big down here in the southeast so Uh a lot of people just go there for entertainment i think they just go there just to walk around and and look at things and so there's tons of people there so we've been setting up at the flea market um so anywhere where there's a lot of people um and and all we do is we just set up a sign a sandwich sign that says hey you know catholic truth you know if you want to find joy if you need prayer um you know um free things basically um and then we we have rosaries, we have pamphlets, we have uh, little gospel cards, and and basically we just make ourselves available in a non-confrontational way. So we're not standing on a soapbox with a with a megahorn preaching right. at people. We're just sort of standing there, um, you know, inviting people to come and and approach us and maybe take a rosary, um, maybe um, ask for prayer. Um, maybe yeah. ask us what Catholicism is all about, or I heard this about Catholics and do you guys really believe that. Um, right. And a lot of the times we, 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 we just share the basic kerygma or the basic gospel message.
1: Right. And do, do um, you approach people or do you wait for them to approach you?
0: We generally wait for them to approach us. Yeah. Okay. We don't, we don't go around sort of following people around and, okay. and, um,
1: like, are you just kind of like at a table with all of your items?
0: Yeah, usually there's a table. Um, you know, a lot of the teams throughout the United States are pretty creative. Sometimes they'll have like a a little cart with them, or they'll set up set up a little cloth on the ground. You know, wherever they can, and whatever they can set up.
1: Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. I'm going I'm gonna have yeah. to look into that because I I work in a in a, co- a public college as a campus minister, and I'd love to find a way to do some evangelization. So I'm gonna have to check out what they have going on.
0: Yeah, they have a they have a special um I think now they have a special program for college teams. Oh, okay. Yep.
1: Wow. Amazing. Yep.
0: Yeah, because that's that's a little that's a little bit unique.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um so so they do have a special support um group or someone that heads that whole entire ministry up to help sort of oversee the teams that, that work in different colleges, I think.
1: Yeah. Don't
0: quote me on that, but you look at the website, you'll probably find out some right. information on that. Yeah. yeah wow yeah and they have and, really good tra- training too in evangelization online um you know when i first started it, it, was, it was pretty good it's even it's got even better now um huh. and and it's really really good I highly, I highly suggest it for people maybe they're not going to do saint paul street evangelization right. or they're just lay catholics who are like how do i evangelize um
1: right. their,
0: their courses are excellent excellent okay. excellent yeah and all you have to do is go to the website you become a You can become a supporting member that could be as little as $5 a month, but Mm -hmm. they'll even allow you to sign up for free if you can't afford to support them.
1: Wow. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. And and lastly, do you have any plans to return to China? Have you been back at all since you moved back to the States?
0: Yeah. So when we moved back, I still had some, um, some, some missions work to kind of finish up on some trips
1: that I had mm-hmm. planned
0: with some other organizations. So we did those a few times. Um, and we also we also ended up owning an apartment while we were there. So um, when we left, we ended up renting it out to some other missionaries. And then eventually we're like, we got to sell this thing because we're not going to go back to China and live there. Um, once we re- 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 realized that was a reality. Um, so I eventually went on a few trips back to, to sell the apartment. Now, when I did... Um, I went back and actually did some pilgrimages. Now that at that time I had become Catholic, and so I said, "You know what? I'm going to the the Catholic churches. I'm going to find these Catholic churches." And that's uh, quite that's quite a story in and of itself, too. But I'm not sure we have enough time to go. Over yeah. That. But yeah, it was it was pretty miraculous. But it was cool to see the 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 old Catholic churches of the missionaries, mm-hmm. especially the Tibetan Catholic churches. I was able to go to Tibetan Catholic church
1: wow. and
0: um and and uh, you know participate. Assist in mass with the Tibetan Catholics. That was amazing.
1: Oh, yeah, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you, Caleb, so much for taking the time to to join me and talk about your mission experience. Um, really fascinating. I definitely could go on for more, but I will be respectful of your time. Um,
0: yeah, no problem.
1: So thanks again, and best of luck to you with, with your um, continued efforts working for the church.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, if there's one book I suggest reading if people are interested, the book um, that I recommend is called God is Read The Secret Story of How Christianity Survived and Flourished in Communist China. It's wow. by the author and um, reporter Liao Yiwu. That's spelled L I A O Y I W U. And so if you want to get a kind of a good understanding of what Christianity in China was like for me when I was there, he wrote this book around. And his travels to these interviews were around the same time that I was in China. And it was in some of the same areas that I was working. And some of the house church leaders in there I met and worked with. um, They were the ones that met us in Beijing and helped us smuggle the bibles and then i also met the um the catholic nun that's in there at wow. the end of her life she was when i met her it was i think 2013 or 14 she was much older than she was in the book mm-hmm. um but it was it's just amazing that i was able to even meet that generation of of both you know um catholic christians protestant christians who had been in china before the communists took over Went through all of the communist takeover, the cultural revolution, the persecutions against, you know, Christians, and then to the time where I was there where things were starting to open up. And unfortunately, today, people should pray for China because um, the current regime and the current president of China have really, really clamped down on religion Mm
1: -hmm. very, very,
0: very badly. So people need to continue to pray for China.
1: Absolutely. Wow. That sounds like a great read. I'm I'm definitely actually going to put that on my Amazon cart because, uh, I'm fascinated by, uh, Christianity in in other cultures. So thank you for that recommendation.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Great. Well, well, again, I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, best of luck to you with, uh, what you have going on right now.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. And, and good luck to you as well.